Good evening, everybody. We're going to be in uh, Titus chapter 3 tonight, so if you have a Bible, open up to Titus 3. And we're going to finish the book tonight. And for those of you who uh, tire of politics and elections, never, okay, there's one. I got a... I got an election hangover. It had nothing to do with alcohol. Oh, if you need a Bible, Agnes has some for you. So does Micah. Just raise your hand. I'll get you a Bible. Thank you, Agnes. Um, but I, I did, I, it, Titus chapter 3 deals with what we're facing as a nation, especially after an election. Interesting, uh, you have a presidential candidate who's elected who, is, who won with, uh, by not winning the popular vote, but won the electoral college. And that's still to be determined. But uh, my point is simply this. The country is divided right down the middle. And uh, I, I've been in both seats in my 52 years of living. I've, I've been in the seat where you're looking at the returns and you're overwhelmed and lamenting and distraught. In a personal election, I've, I've gone through that. And then I've also been in the winning seat, watching as everything you want is rolling forward. And I've watched the mantle of power shift in this country. Fascinatingly enough, it always shifts without uh, a shot being fired, peaceful exchange of power. It's an amazing thing about a constitutional republic designed in such a capacity. And in Titus, you know, here's a man appointed by Paul to go into the island of Crete and to establish a, a godly environment and a, a, that the church itself would have a, an effect on the Cretans, which were the most worthless, filthy, human beings the world considered. You were called a Cretan in the ancient world because you were lying, lying and thieving and you couldn't be trusted to be called a Cretan. And so Paul appoints Titus to go into this, this island where he can't even escape and he has to go in and change that culture. And he made great inroads because we're going to see at the conclusion of, of this epistle, epistle means letter, we're going to see at the conclusion of this epistle that Paul wants him to greet uh, three or four people and so you see that the church is growing. He also wants to appoint them to positions of authority, which means uh, the more responsibility that starts to uh, be established, the more you need folks working. And so you can see the church growing simply by the greeting that Paul makes at the end of the, of the epistle. But it's fascinating that with, with this charge being given to Titus to transform the island of Crete and going in and affecting the public square and affecting the schools and affecting everything pertaining to the, the, the nature of that island and dealing with these people that were the antithesis of, of, of Christian belief. Uh, this is the world Titus has been thrust into. And here we are in America, especially in the church, where uh, there's a push in Christendom. And I watched it on social media as people, you know, I don't follow social media, but people would send me stuff in emails and say, you have to read this, you have to read that. And watching how the body of Christ itself is divided, where many would say, well, you know, I'm never Trump, or I'm voting for a third-party candidate, or I'm all Trump, or, you know, it's our only hope for the Supreme Court, and if you care about babies, you're going to elect Trump. And, and I, I watched the, the litany of both sides within Christendom itself, and seeing the division within Christendom itself. And these are godly people on both sides. And I've, I've always believed and continue to believe that Christianity is not a subculture, it's to be a counterculture. And this is why Paul was called by the Lord to put Titus into Crete to create a counterculture so that these people wouldn't be called Cretans anymore. We don't use that term today, Cretans. It doesn't exist anymore. That dynamic that existed on that island has been dissipated, and those people have been transformed. 
There's more churches on the island of Crete, and I've been there, than, than any other type of religious. It, it was the center of, of Christianity for a long period of time, and God did a, a mighty work on the island of Crete. So that transformative work that transforms a culture, uh, and we look at it, and, and, and Titus was sent there to be countercultural, not subcultural. You know, you don't, you don't try to listen to what everyone is saying and try to appeal, uh, appeal and appease and, 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 and compromise what it is God's called you to do for the sake of getting along and then maintaining your kind of clicky, cool environment while the world around you implodes. The stark reality, and people dismiss this, but if, if, if we were living in 1857 in America, we would look at a nation similar to what we see here, strongly divided, Divided by socioeconomics, racial class, um, divided by religion, divided by ideology, uh, and, and, and the nation was heavily divided to the point where within a few short years there'd be 650,000 soldiers dead on a field of battle, and, and the nation was embroiled in what we consider, and, and rightfully so, one of the most heinous evils that have ever uh, perpetrated and, and, and been infused in the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country, and that's slavery. And, and yet half of the nation believed that slavery was legal and, and believed that if we needed to preserve the union, we had to make compromise to allow that to continue. And that's why you had bloody Kansas, where you, you know, every, every state would decide for itself whether it was free or slave based on those that would vote. And so you had people coming in wanting to increase the slaveholding states, and so they called it bloody Kansas because they fought and killed one another to try to maintain that this would be a slaveholding state. And, and then you had a stacking of the Supreme Court, which occurred as well. And, and you saw it with John C. Calhoun and a number of others in the early stages of the, of the um, Civil War, that finally it came to a place where the populace said, enough is enough. And one of the most unpopular presidents in the history of our nation was Abraham Lincoln. He came into office with what would be considered less than a 21% approval rating. He had 11 death threats before he ever stepped into Washington as a president of the United States. He came to Washington disguised as a woman so they wouldn't kill him. And it was on the front page of every paper in the United States, mocking and scourging and, 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 and causing him to look like an absolute buffoon. He was despised. And this president steps in, despised by the nation, and he had never held a, an office. He was much like President Obama. He had never held an office more than as a freshman legislator, and he was a, a, a congressman from Illinois. And he comes in with zero experience, and he's a backwoods Kentucky boy who had never had a formal education. And he comes in, and, and right away, uh, they fire on Fort Sumter, and we enter into the Civil War. And that was the declaration. Before he even stepped into office, seven states would secede from the Union. And, and it was, the nation was embroiled in one of its worst events in our history. And for, for over 100 years, it would divide our country. The civil rights movement was all established simply based on, on, on political ideals. Uh, the, the, the black community in the South, and you do your history, I'm not making this up, the black community in the South were all initially Republicans, because it was Lincoln who promised 40 acres and a mule and a restoration and allowing these, these men and women to have freedom from their captors and, give them, and grant them land and to break up these plantations. He died, and it was Johnson who took over for him. Johnson rescinded all of that, and 
and then we were, we were sent into this misery. And, and so you had the black community looking, well, the Republicans don't care about us, the Democrats don't. And so the, the civil rights, and, and by the way, the civil rights era, the people who put that forward were Republicans. The people who stood in opposition to it were the Southern Democrats. And then today you see a shift in all of that as well, where uh, the Democrats are now pro-black, uh, uh, and, 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 the, the, and, and you see a voting block of almost 85 to 90%. And, and this, is, this is how ideologies affect communities and a nation divided, and, and yet you're looking at a cultural transformation. What happened in 1857 prior to the Civil War that allowed us to survive a civil war and 650,000 people dying on a field of battle? I mean, that means that every home in America lost a brother, a father, or a husband. Every home in America. How did we survive that? Well, in 1857, in the second floor of the Dutch Reformed Church in, in New York, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear put together a, a prayer meeting similar to what we did tonight at 6.30. We began in prayer. And this prayer meeting took root and spread. And as a result of that one prayer meeting, it was Horace Greeley who ran most of the newspapers on the eastern seaboard who had heard about all these people converting to Christ through these prayer meetings and sent out his reporter. And the reporter, because of the traffic and the crowds, could only get to eight of these, eight of these prayer meetings in New York City that had spread across the country. And within less than a year's time, there was a million new converts in a nation of 33 million. So imagine that today in a nation of 330 million, if we had the same percentage, every church in America would have three services filled to capacity, and there'd still be probably 3 million people looking for a place to fellowship on Sunday. And it was, that was in 1857. You go into the Civil War, and D.L. Moody was an ambulance driver in the Civil War. There was still revival not only going on in the, in the, in the Confederate, in the southern states, but also in the north. And as a result, you, you had a, a string of, of churches uh, and denominations that were birthed out of that, that early revival period of 1857 that, that transformed the landscape of the country. And it was actually that conviction and, and Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, by Harriet Beecher Stowe created such a fervor in the Christian community that even in the wealthy north where the industrialists were, believed that they needed to do something to stop slavery. And so the entire ethos and, and the culture of America changed to realizing the, the, the heinousness and the misery of slavery, and it changed the conviction of the nation that we would survive 650,000 people dying on a field of battle. My question then, with that understanding of our history is, 70 million babies are dead and not a Christian cares. For the first time in 40 years in our country's history, and, and whether you like him or dislike him, and, and quite honestly, he wasn't my choice. Uh, I, I, I struggle with him. But I, I can say this, in 40 years of watching political campaigns, I have never seen a presidential candidate in a major presidential debate give a greater defense for the unborn than Donald Trump did in that last presidential debate. And to declare, I want to remove Roe versus Wade and declare that he wants to put it at the state level and to protect the unborn and to, and to reverse the Hyde Amendment, which is the government paying. And by the way, just for those of you who are pro-Planned Parenthood, it'll tie into the text, trust me. For those of you pro-Planned uh, pro Parenthood, 77% of the Planned Parenthoods are in ethnic communities. The black population in America represents anywhere from 13 to 16% of the, of the population of America, yet 40% of all abortions are on the black community. You talk about Black Lives, black lives Matter. Had, had abortion not occurred in 1973 in Roe v. Wade, and the black community wasn't decimated by this, the black community would be, would be 40% of America right now. And where's, where's the outcry? 
we are more disgusted with his behavior. And I've already gone through that. If you struggle with him in his moral capacity, I do too. But if you think he's disqualified because of his moral failure, which is extensive, then you need to take Samson out of the, the hall of faith. You got to take Rahab out. Nothing moral or redeeming in their lives. And what was the reason why God used Samson in the book of Judges in chapter 14? God was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines because they were under, the Israelites were under oppression for 40 years. Nobody was even crying out to the Lord back then. And then there's 20 years of peace in Israel as a result of it. 70 million babies are dead, and we're saying, God bless America. How about America bless God? And where's the conviction in the body of Christ? We're more concerned with his moral failure than we are with our silence in the decimation of 70 million lives. And we can go back and forth on this that we say, well, it's not really a human being. Why? Where do you come up with that? Settled science and embryology declares that that's a human embryo. Why is it not a child? Well, it's too small. So smaller people are less valuable than larger people. It's its level of development. So adolescents are less valuable than fully grown adults. It's its environment. I'm less valuable behind the pulpit or in in the dais at, at city council than I am at home. It's its degree of dependency. Oh, it's dependent on the mother. Well, anyone dependent on insulin or oxygen here? That doesn't hold up. This is either the greatest social movement in the history of our lifetime that the church is silent on, or we're on the wrong side of history. And when the Bible says that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb, and when Mary and and Elizabeth came into contact with each other, and 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 the babies are quoted by name, and by the word by the way, the word fetus means baby in Latin. These babies leap in the womb and are called by name. It, it, it does, it's, it's not a question in God's economy. It's not a question in God's word. But for us, it's inconvenient. And so we become a counterculture where we don't want to talk about the tough issues because we don't want people to dislike us. And we want to be tolerant. I understand the word tolerant, but remember this. Truth is never tolerant of a lie, and a lie is never tolerant of a truth. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. We contend in a world of ideas for the sake of future generations. And I believe black lives matter. And I would like to see a population of 40%. I would like to see this country transformed. But I've also been addressed by by inner city black pastors who are pro-life saying simply this idea, "If, if you love the unborn so much, why don't you give us a way out of the inner city? Where's the church in the inner city? How often do we go into the inner city to help these folks out and give these single moms an opportunity? But that's not my problem. So we divide ourselves in ideology and we, we struggle as a nation. And now we are at a precipice where we're rejoicing and I'm watching it and, and I'm watching people quote me, or not quote me, but, but send me quotes of people that are visceral, wanting revenge and wanting their pound of flesh. That's not why God did what he did on Tuesday night. Don't forget that. There, there needs to be a season of good works and patience and kindness and forgiveness and moving forward and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I, uh, I sent this out today to all those that helped get me elected in the city council, and it was very important to me to do this. And I said, dear friends, this has never been my campaign. This is and always will be our campaign, and we won I've been given the privilege and joy to serve the people of Thousand Oaks once again because you made it happen. Your tireless efforts on behalf of this campaign made this a great privilege possible. I'm so very thankful to each and every one of you. I know I'm doing something 
right, when God surrounds me with people like you. And then I said, enjoy the rewards of your efforts. And to my opponents who are brave and caring, I want to thank them for stepping into the public square, as difficult as it is, in order to make a difference. They did not lose. Instead, they made their voice heard by me and the citizens of our city. And I want to thank them for having the courage to run. Let us all move forward to make our city shine. We differ only in times by our opinions, but what unites us all is our love for this amazing city. You see, the person I ran against may have said mean things about me, but she's not the enemy. She's my, she's my opportunity. And the only way you engage in that is to step into the public square with ideas, but you speak the truth in love and you do it in kindness. And this isn't a time to say, I, I told you so, and let's indict and let's arrest and let's, let's kill everybody. Because this will be short-lived. I will tell you right now, this is mercy from God and grace. Nothing more. I believe, quite honestly, and, and people are, I'll, I'll get backlash from it, but I think it would be a waste of, of political capital for Donald Trump to pursue indictment of Hillary Clinton or, or Barack Obama. Have they done wrong? Absolutely. But do we want to move forward in restoring this nation or do we want our pound of flesh? And, and mark my words, we can do that and probably be successful. But how about if we restore the system to protect us from that once again? Spend our energy on building instead of destroying. The reason why I say that is because look at the text. Watch this. This is a countercultural infusion of Titus onto this island of Crete to transform this island nation. He says, remind them, verse 1, to be subject to rulers and to authorities and to obey, to be ready for every good work, good work, to speak evil of no one. Ha, time out. Well, wait, what about my enemies? No. No vain speculation, no comments on the internet, no social media, no smacking, no stabbing, nothing. Not permitted. I'm saying to the pastors of the community, I want to put together the, the uh, Conejo Clergy Civility Council, CCC. And I want to create a logo where any candidate running would say, I promise to run for the office, not against my opponent. I will say nothing ill of my opponent. They can have that label on their mailers if they agree to those terms. Wouldn't that change the dynamic of our culture if people were kind to each other and just dealt with the issues? Maybe it's just me who thinks that's important. Okay, I'll move on. You see? It's Wednesday night. You've got to work with me here. Speak evil of no one. To be peaceable. Huh. Gentle. Let, let, let those words resonate. Marinate in those. Showing all humility to all men. Yes, even your enemies, even your opposition. You hear that? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. I've shared with you about Bishop Huggins, Democrat pastor, lifelong of the largest black church in Ventura County, my friend, pro-life, staunch pro-life, because we developed a relationship and a friendship and I lovingly shared with him and, and he lovingly shared with me, I understood his position, he understood mine, and he now understands how important it is to protect a black child in the womb. And I understand how important it is to get in the inner city and make a difference for the moms that have those black children in their wombs. That's called community. 
That's called transforming a culture. That's not us and them. He lives down in the valley and he's a different color and he's a different party. He had, he had the right Reverend Jeremiah, uh, right Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright speak at his church. Yeah, and I was there. And I sat on the dais with him. What kind of a Republican white pastor are you to do that? Jesus would have been sitting there. And you know what? This is what we do. We endeavor. And it speaks here. Peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves are also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. How did we get here? Because our lives were screwed up. And Jesus changed us. And, and we want mercy from the Lord, don't we? Can I get an amen? Then why is it we don't want justice from God? We want mercy, yet we want justice for our enemies, not mercy. Because I said those words, and I could see in the room a tangible frustration with what I said. This is the last thing you want to hear from me. But that's the reality. What God has given to us, we give to one another. Watch. Verse 4, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. The idea of washing is through the water of the word. We grow in our knowledge and understanding of the truth as we read his word, and we're washed by it. We're cleansed of our filth. And the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, we've covered this, and I'm almost finished. That's why I'm breezing through it. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. Not just to appease me because I did a message on Wednesday night. We do this constantly. This is who we are. This is how we operate. This is how we change a culture. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain what? Let's try that again. To maintain what? What are good works? Things that bless people and allow them to see the love of Christ because you're peaceable and kind and forgiving and merciful and gracious and you represent the Lord in all that you do. Good works build. Work builds. Anger tears down and destroys. Words can can murder. As Jesus said, you've heard that that said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I say to you, You say to your brother, rock or fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. What he's saying is your words can murder. Watch what you do on social media. Stop it. Don't participate in it, and don't send it forward. And don't copy me on anything that you haven't checked first. And it may be funny, but that's somebody's father or mother or daughter or brother or son. Be careful. I don't want it said about me, and I don't want to say it about anybody else. Right? Everybody tracking me? These things are good and profitable to who? Not just Christians? To all, men, mankind. This is how you change a culture. A subculture is all the evil out there, I'm not going to confront it, and I'm going to slowly adapt to it and become just like it. A counterculture is I'm going to stand in opposition to it, but I'm going to speak the truth in love, and I'm going to do it by good works, and I'm going to be peaceable, gentle, willing to you. Those are all the things that we do. That's the difference between a, a subculture and a counterculture. See, it's hip in the church to be subculture. I'm not voting for a candidate. I'm going to vote for a third party. 
Well, that's, that's nice and that's dandy, but you're building nothing. No, 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 I have a conviction and I'm gonna vote for it so that everybody, okay, babies are dying. What are you gonna do about that? This is unacceptable to the Lord. You need to step in and face that. What is your answer? Well, it's not as bad as you think it is and it's not that, okay, so what you're doing is you're dismissing the word of God for the sake of security. And as Benjamin Franklin said, he would give up his freedom for the sake of security deserves neither. We have to stand. The Apostle Paul said, stand, that, therefore, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. So now we come to verse 9, and here we go. This is where we are as a nation, and this is where we pick up the study. All right? Everybody with me say Benghazi. Okay. Everybody say with me uh, 30,000 deleted emails. Give me another issue that's bothering you. No, better yet, don't. Ready? Avoid foolish disputes. Genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. What Paul is saying is there's people that just want to be contrary. They're going to step into the church and they're going to want to change the issue from what is of greatest importance to doing good works. And instead they want to focus on every, what are they they called? Conspiracy theory on the face of the earth. Can you help me this Sunday feed the home? I I can't. I I, I don't do that. This is what I do. What good works are you doing? How are you active in the community? Who are you serving? Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I, I am a harbinger of truth and I'm a bearer of the truth. That's great. But what good works are you doing? And you can sit and divide. And really what, the, what, what Paul was reflecting on were the legalists that would go on to these endless genealogies. And, and Jesus even addressed it when someone came to him and said, there was a man who married a woman and he died and his brother married her and then he died and then his brother married her and he died. And he goes through, they go through seven in this litany. And then they say to Jesus, in the resurrection, who will she be married to? It's like, first of all, I would have been done with her illustration after the third, you know, marriage. And, and then who would want to marry her? I'm just kidding. But, but seven, you know, who's she married to? And Jesus says, you, you, you don't know the scriptures. You'll neither be married nor given in marriage. And what he's saying is you're wasting your time. You want to focus on all this while people around you are starving and babies are dying. Do something. We want to come, we want to open our Bibles, we want to go through, we want to highlight everything, we want to do our, you know, studies, and we want to have all the books of the ones we've completed and go through all these things. And yet, what are we doing? And that's called stepping into the public square. That's called making your life count unto good works and loving folks in this capacity. And he's saying, avoid these disputes, these genealogies, these contentions, these strivings about the law. They're unprofitable and useless in the church especially because what it does is it paralyzes people that want to do what is right. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. Now, I've met divisive people and and for some reason they love to come to church. And you know what? I can tell the very first time that I'm sitting with them, this is going to be a problem. I can see it. And part of me says, you know, the door swings both ways. 
Blessed subtraction. You can now go. But what is, what's the Lord's heart? I don't do that. Lord's heart is talk with them. Okay, how many times? Well, listen to them. The first time, hear them out. Hear them out again a second time. Try to understand where they're coming from. And have you ever been in a conversation where you, you, you're, already, you're already at the end of their thought and you're just waiting for them to go on and through their litany and you're like, I'm already, I, I know where you're going with this. Delete. But the Lord is saying, endeavor with them once, twice. The third time, if they're not yielding, he makes it very clear. He says, reject them. Reject a divisive man. The word reject in the Greek means just turn your back. And basically what you're saying is, I've heard you twice. This isn't going anywhere. You're not going to be in leadership. A house divided won't stand. We agree that we disagree. If you want to remain here, this has to end. And, and I had to address this recently this week. And, and it's one of those things, I, I don't, it's not di- dictatorial, but this is what we stand for. There's, this is what we do. And if you're going to be in a position of leadership, this is what we do. And if it isn't something you want to do, I understand that. I'm going to help you find a place where you can do what you want to do. I know you love the Lord but this isn't what we're doing here. And, and why are we doing that? Because we endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I want you to have the freedom to do that, but here it's not going to work. And so, for example, in the room right now, there's probably five-point Calvinists. There's probably folks who don't believe in pre-trib or pre-millennial, which is an eschatology, a study of the end times. And you have different opinions, and some of you are King James only. Some of you tolerate me going through the new King James. Some of you believe in hymns only. Some of you, you have a whole varied background, but I have news for you. None of you are contentious. And you're, you're endeavoring for the sake of growing together as a family, even though in that family we have differing opinions, yes? But we, we get along. And, and it's to our benefit to overlook an offense. And we endeavor and we strive for that purpose. And so Paul's saying exactly that, knowing that such a person is warped, sinning, and self-condemned. They just want to be right, and they can't let go of this. Have you ever had anyone that the conversation is only about one thing continually? And you try to change the subject, and they come right back to that one thing, and they only stop in their conversation, not in conversation, they only talk, stop talking long enough to change clips. Right? This is Paul's final words to the church in Crete. What he's saying is, this is the only way it works when we become countercultural. First of all, as a church, we have to get along. Secondly, towards the lost, we must be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one. When they think of a Christian, they think of somebody different. You know what? That was my greatest joy. Some of the people that ran against me say, I never thought, after everything I'd read about you, that you were as nice as you are. And I got news for you. I am not that nice. I'll tell you who you're seeing and who you're complimenting. That's Jesus. Rob McCoy wouldn't apply anything in Titus 3. I would be lighting you up like a Christmas tree right now. And, and really, that's what happens in the campaign is somebody says something visceral and mean, and the very first thing, my flesh, Rob McCoy, and in me, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. I immediately want to react. 
That's why I'm off social media. We have got to take that away from President-elect Trump. He can't do Twitter anymore. <laughs> Three o'clock in the morning, he's like, I got, ah, ah. A spirit-controlled temperament. Put it aside and let the Lord settle and calm and quiet your spirit. I do not respond until after God's given me a peace and a love for the person I'm responding to. Did you hear that? Before you snap off on social media, put it down and walk away. And ask God to give you a love for the person you're writing about or writing to. And if you can't speak something kind, then don't do it at all. And then he said, when I send Artemis to you, verse 12, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet what? Urgent needs. That they may not be what? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Can anyone recite the fruits of the Spirit for me? Good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. What, what Kelly? Gentleness, self-control. Wouldn't those transform a culture if we all applied them some of you are thrilled because you won the election I'm one of them be careful the other half of America that voted different than you did is looking for a godly example they have fears they have concerns they have hurts the same ones you felt the same ones you felt in previous elections are the ones they're feeling right now the exact ones and, and let's, let's say that it's foolish minds darkened by ideology in the absence of Christ. And this is, where, this, is, this is what I'm going to close with because as he lays out these folks that are going to increase in their fruitfulness and their good works to transform a culture, an entire island nation, which they did. We are at a precip right now in the history of our nation. And this little church was used of God. I'm one degree of separation from the president-elect of the United States by four connections, probably five. Mike Huckabee spoken here at the church. Newt Gingrich has spoken here at the church. I know Reince Priebus very well. I know Sean Spicer very well. These are folks I can pick up the phone and talk to them right now. They're going to be in cabinet positions with the president of the United States. All of the states that we went into with the American Renewal Projects, all won except for Virginia. Virginia lost by 60,000 votes. The governor of that state allowed 60,000 felons to vote, changed the course of that state. Some of you want to get justice on that. Let it go. Everything writes itself in time. What we're supposed to do is love people and impart truth. And so we watched as this, in, in modern history, this is the largest evangelical turnout in modern history. Every state we were in, 40,000 Amish got in buses and went and voted in Pennsylvania. That blue wall that's impregnable fell. Over, there was um, an 81, uh, the the largest turnout for Christians in America, over 130 million. 81% of them went for Trump. 16% went for, for Clinton. To give you an idea, the next largest turnout was, was George Bush II. 78% went for him. 21% went for Gore. 
Catholics. Obama won the Catholic vote by 1% in the last election. Donald Trump won the Catholic vote by nine percentage points, the largest turnout of Catholics. Why did Christians show up? Well, they're concerned, they're afraid. But let me tell you now that they've exercised, and this and still represents only 30% of the Christian population. 85 million evangelical Christians in a presidential election, less than 25% of them vote. In non-presidential elections, 12.5%. In this election, 30% showed up. 30% changed the course of the election. States that would never have gone into a conservative realm did. And when it's all said and done, I believe the popular vote will still be in Trump's favor. But at this point, the nation, and even then, it will be a razor-thin margin. And so you can look at that and say, onward, Christian soldiers. And you go in there and you're going to set it right and we're going to indict and we're going to arrest and we're going to show them. Is that why God gave you grace and mercy? The, the body of Christ that, that if I were to call for all of us to stand out in front of Planned Parenthood this week, nobody would show up. And I say that. I know this church would. But the reality is, Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to go in the inner city. We just want to be left alone. The same thing you want is what they want in the sense that they're concerned about their families. And my admonition and exhortation to you and to myself, cross over that line and get into that world. Go calm and quiet and comfort and get to know them. You know why the pollsters got it so wrong? Not a single one of the elites in Manhattan that run the polling outfits and the media had probably ever had a conversation with a Trump voter. I went through the Rust Belt and the seven states that we went through. I was in, I was in Ohio. I was in Dayton, Ohio. Every business was boarded up, homeless on the streets. Massive buildings, beautiful buildings of antiquity, completely vacant. No, you couldn't, I couldn't find a convenience store, right? We had to walk just to find a convenience store in downtown. No stores. There's no economy. It's gone. National cash registers left. Every business is left. And I'm walking through that rust belt. And I'm thinking every one of these folks would love to have a job. That equates no matter if you're Christian or non-Christian. Everyone would love it if somebody would come down and help them. But we want to isolate and we want to castigate. I didn't say castrate, castigate. <laughs> and yet God is commanding that we do just the opposite. We step into that world and we love them. You know, Joe was with me, or I should say I was with Joe in every one of those states. How many states total? 10 in the last year? 11 states, countless events. I became, I'm, I'm 20,000 miles from Diamond on Delta, just to let you know how long I've been in a, in a, a tube in the air, breathing everyone's else, everyone else's breath and other things. And all that labor and all that effort, and I, and, and I can sit back and say, we did it. You know the only thing we've done? 
is to open the eyes of the body of Christ that there's work to be done to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Do not walk out of this room prideful, wanting your pound of flesh. This is how you win the island of Crete, and this is how you win the other side of the aisle. Love one another as I have loved you. Do good to those who spitefully use you. And I'll close with this last thought. We started this venture of faith two years ago, wanting to get one school board candidate elected. We wanted to do it in a gentle and peaceable way, so I met one of the kindest men I've ever met. His name's John Anderson. He's so meek and mild, he wouldn't hurt a fly. He'd lost two or three times previous attempts to get on the school board. So we unified the body of Christ to the best of our ability, and we got him elected to school board. I lost the assembly. I, I was asked to run in the midst of that, and I had no intention to, but I did. Through that loss and a number of other things, connections were made, and then I got elected because of that effort of, of all these folks to the city council. And the city council looked at me like, who is this white evangelical who ran against our best friend? And they were scared. And there's unity now on the, on the council. I can't say that I can take credit for it, but I certainly didn't attribute it to its demise. I've, I've had the privilege to get to know each and every one of them. I've prayed in their presence. They know I love the Lord and they know I love them. God's done a neat work. I can't tell you based on the Brown Act some of the things that have occurred, but suffice to say, it's nothing short of miraculous. And then we have this election and we wanted to get another school board candidate elected. And then we thought, let's get two. And the two was kind of a sub-thought. We got the one elected. They won more votes than the two incumbents. The second one is 600 votes shy and there's still 20% of the vote left to be counted. She may pull it off. This is a tsunami. We got a supervisor elected. We've changed our culture and we've done it lovingly. And the way you do it is you respond like you saw that letter. If they're mean to you, you're completely nice to them and you love them and you find a way to be nice and you be genuine and sincere. And I have to say, I have more respect for Ann LaFianza, my opponent, and Billy Martin, my opponent, and even Al although I didn't feel like I was running against him. I have more respect for them than I have for the majority of the body of Christ who won't step into the public square and let their voice be heard. And I don't speak of this church in that capacity. I'm talking about our travels across the country when we face this everywhere we go. They're willing to do something. They care enough to want to make a difference. Do we hold the words of life according to Jesus? Do we hold the words of life according to Jesus? Then why in the world wouldn't we want that infused into the community we love? I'm not talking about a theocracy. I'm talking about truth establishing good government. You don't lie. You don't cheat. You don't steal. You're peaceable, willing to yield. You're merciful. You're gracious. Those equate to any culture. But they view Christianity as people who want their pound of flesh so they can sit in their enclaves and declare themselves to be self-righteous. Instead, what God wants are people who are willing to step in and contend for the truth, that the people of the community, the people of your world, would have better lives, and fruitfulness would abound, and you'd build good things, not tear them down. So that's my post-election night sermon. And I have to tell you, I was burdened by it. When Abraham Lincoln won a second 
term of office. And he gave this speech 17 days before he'd be shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth. The Civil War, Sherman had just gotten down to Atlanta. The South, and, and, and as a result, Lincoln thought he was going to lose to McClellan. He ended up winning the election. The most unpopular president in the history of the world, in the history of the nation, he was reelected. He beat McClellan, who was beloved by everybody. They thought he was going to dominate. Lincoln wins a second term of office because of what Sherman did in combating the South. Lincoln steps forward, and everyone thought he was going to scourge the South and demand a pound of flesh. Tonight, when you're finished, I want you to go home and read the second inaugural address. You know who he blames and calls to repentance? The union. And he says, we need to bind up the nation's wounds. Could you imagine had he lived and that heart would have gone forward? We still have a chance to do that. And as Christians, let's set that tone. May God empower you and bless you to do that according to the riches in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen.